at this conference, and they just wanted me to just receive throughout the week, and I'll have to prepare a sermon for today, and so I'm just so thankful for, for our staff that cares for me that way, and so will you join me in welcoming Pastor Paul to come up and preach today? There you go. Yeah. I'm so glad you're back. I start missing you when you're not here. It's like, how are you guys doing? You guys doing good? Anybody pretty excited about the weather we've been having out there? Yeah. It's like finally feeling like the Washington that we love. I'm enjoying it. Hey, well, we're gonna kick back into our relationship goals series, but first, let's bow our heads. God, we just thank you so much, Lord, for bringing us here this morning, God, that we can come and we can share your word, we can um, just experience your love in the company of those that believe like we do. And, and God, we're just so thankful for that. God, I just pray that um, with this message, Lord, that it would fall on soft hearts, that we would have ears to hear what you have for us, Jesus. Um, and God, that anything that you bring us through or anything that you call us to, God, it's, it's because you have good things for us in it. God, that you want to breathe life into us. And we just worship for you and we just praise you this morning. In your name we pray, amen. Amen, well, anybody else been uh, having a lot of fun talking about some biblical examples of really messed up family dynamics, right? Has that been fun? Has it been fun getting to see some similarities in like maybe your family that, you know, that you, would, you wouldn't assume that like thousands upon thousands of years ago that these guys would be experiencing the same things that you do in your families. Um, but you know, the thing I love about this relationship goals title for this series isn't, isn't just looking at, you know, these picture-perfect models of families that we know that we're never gonna be, but, but God gives us real people to show us the, the power that he brings when we invite him into our relationships, amen? Isn't that good? Isn't that fun? Well, today, we get to see what could possibly be the worst sibling rivalry since Cain and Abel. And I know some of you guys have siblings. Anyone have siblings out there? Anyone grow up with siblings your age? Because I kind of feel like that's even like more sense for friction. And, um, but the cool thing about this, this story is what we're gonna get to look at is, is God's work of reconciliation, even in the situations where we think that it would be least possible. Uh, and to get there, we need to do a little bit of like some pre-work because we can't assume that everyone knows everything that's going on with these guys up until this point, but for the sake of the sanity of the kids, the, the teachers watching our kids, we're gonna go ahead and shorten this little story up, right? So we're just gonna have a little bit of story time with Paul. Is that okay? So we're just gonna kind of go through quite a bit of like history of these guys, a little bit rapid fire. So buckle up and let's enjoy the journey together, Okay. Well, when we talk about um, these, these guys, we talk about Jacob and we talk about Esau. And I don't know if you guys are the same way, but I'm not the most creative person. And so I can't create characters when I listen to like what they're like. I always have to like find someone that I know and kind of like project them onto that visual representation, right? So, so when I read the story uh, about Jacob and Esau, I look at Esau and I think of the brawny man. I don't know, maybe you guys too, with this, this man's man who's out in the woods and he's hunting and he's fishing and he's hairy, the Bible says, so much that, that when his, uh, that his, his own father can't tell the difference between this man's arm and the back of a goat. And I don't know if you've ever been to like a petting zoo before, 
and then like touched your arm, but hopefully it's not anywhere near the same. <laughs> Jacob, on the other hand, is a little bit different. Jacob's kind of an indoor kid, right? So, <laughs> Jacob's not so much of like the outside killing things and making them into dinner. He's a little bit more on the like hanging out with mom and and the problem with this, though, is his mom's not the most reputable person, like, in general. And, and she, she takes some, uh, some opportunities to maybe massage things in her way a little bit more. And she loves Jacob. And so we get to see this wonderful uh, example of, of a, a mother's heart towards a kid that maybe might be going in the wrong direction. And we start off from the very beginning of these two in the womb, and the Bible says that even from that point, they're fighting. These two twin brothers that even in the womb are wrestling and, and creating a ruckus inside the womb. And, and when they're born, we see that, that Jacob is grabbing onto his older brother Esau's leg when he comes out. And, and that's where Jacob becomes named Jacob, which literally means heel holder or supplanter. And, and we know that in ancient Israel, uh, the name that was given was, was a, very prophetic, uh, a, a, a very prophetic thing to, to really speaking into the life of the child what his life was going to be like. And we see that this, this animosity towards each other continues, and there's this one point where Esau comes back from a hunt, right? And I don't know if you've ever been out like out in the woods for a long period of time and you come back and you feel like you're literally going to die of hunger, you know? Unless you like bring yummy snacks and it's just like a little truck. Like, but just imagine this guy, he's, he's out hunting and he comes back and, and he literally thinks he's going to die, but his brother just uh, boiled this yummy stew, right? And so he goes to his brother and he says, brother, would you please let me have some food? I'm on death's door, I'm going to die. And like every good brother, he does offer a bowl of stew, but there's just one stipulation. He demands his birthright. <laughs> Not, hey, let me plan your bike, or hey, can I have a turn like with your G.I. Joes or something like that, but like, I'm going to ask from you the most prized possession a father can give his firstborn child. So Esau, being Esau, not the smartest guy in the world, uh, he goes ahead and gives his birthright over to Jacob, and he hates him for it. Fast forward to uh, his father Isaac getting to the point where he's starting to lose his eyesight, and he's getting older, and he understands that his days are numbered, and at this point, he decides that this is when he's going to pass on his blessing to Esau. So he tells Esau, I need you to go out hunting, cook for me a great meal, you know what I like, and bring it to me and I'm going to bless you in that time. And, and so Esau goes out and while Esau's out, Rebecca's listening to what's going on. And again, she's a pretty smart woman. And so what she decides to do is she goes into the living room, knocks the Xbox controller out of Jacob's hands <laughs> and says, I've got a plan, come with me. And their plan is to trick their father Isaac into giving away the blessing to Jacob instead of Esau. All he's gotta do is bring him food and, and take the skin of a goat and wrap it on his arms because that's exactly what Esau is, right? I mean, like, how many fathers, uh, like, you know, yeah, I don't understand, you know, like, um, maybe uh, I'll give a little bit of credit and, like, the, the voices didn't really match up, but, you know, as soon as you touch, like, 
I don't know, maybe like if, if my kid was like hairy like a goat, like that would be the thing that would clue me in. But, but I kind of, I don't give a whole lot of credit to Isaac in this moment, but, but Isaac blesses Jacob. And as Jacob leaves, Esau comes back and he finds out what's happened. He talks to his father and his father says that, hey man, I thought that your brother was you and I went ahead and passed on that blessing. And when Esau asks, well, is there a blessing that you can give to me? And Isaac doesn't have the same blessing of prosperity to give to his son Esau, who should have received the blessing that Jacob had. And because of this, Esau decides that he's going to count down the days for his, for his father's life, and as soon as his father passes away, he'll get his revenge and kill his brother. Well, his mother, being a smart woman, decides that, that Jacob should probably not stay in this location. So she says, Jacob, just run away. Go live with my brother Laban. And as soon as things cool down, you'll probably be able to come back again. So Jacob leaves. And, you know, for the first time, Jacob's out on his own. He doesn't have the, the safety net of his family. He doesn't have the security that his mother brought him. And, and he's alone in a strange place. And through this time, God starts working on Jacob's heart. He starts teaching him how to depend on him and how to work hard and to provide for a family and to, and to build something and through this process of God softening Jacob's heart and, and breaking him down and building him up into something different, so much so that, that he eventually changes Jacob, or Jacob's name into Israel, taking away the, the, the supplanter deceiver name and giving him the name uh, of, of someone who would wrestle with God and with man and would overcome. And part of God restoring Jacob is is bringing Jacob back home to the homeland that, that God had promised his family. But there's just one problem. There's still a guy there that wants to kill Jacob. And I know that sometimes we go into like family events or you know holiday dinners, maybe somewhat dreading the, the company that we're gonna be in with. And just imagine though that the person you're passing the potatoes to wants to kill you and everyone that came in the minivan with you on the way. But Jacob is obedient to God. And so he sets his heart and he sets all of his affairs in a way where he's preparing to make reconciliation work with his brother Esau. And that's where we pick up in Genesis chapter 32. It starts off, Jacob also went on his way and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, this is the camp of God. So he named the place Mahanan. Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. He instructed them, this is what you are to say to my Lord Esau. Your servant Jacob says, I have been staying with Laban and have remained there until now. I have cattle and donkeys, sheep and goats, male and female servants. Now I am sending this message to my Lord that I might find favor in your eyes. When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, we went to your brother Esau and now he is coming to meet you and 400 men are with him. In great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups, and the flocks and herds and camel as well. He thought, if Esau comes and attacks one group, the group that is left may escape. Then Jacob prayed, O God, my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Lord, you 
who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed the Jordan, but now I have become two camps. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me, and also the mothers with their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper, and I will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. He spent the night there, and from what he had with him, he selected a gift for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 29 male goats, 200 ewes and 30 rams, 20 rams, 30 female camels with their young, 40 cows and 10 bulls, and 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. He put them in the care of his servants, each herd by itself, and said to his servants, go ahead of me and keep some space between the herds. He instructed the one in the lead, when my brother Esau meets you and asks, who do you belong to and where are you going and who owns all of these animals in front of you? Then you are to say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a gift sent to my Lord Esau, and he is coming behind us. He also instructed the second, the third, and the others who followed the herds. You are to say the same thing to Esau when you meet him, and be sure to say, your servant Jacob is coming behind us. For he thought, I will pacify him with these gifts I am sending on ahead. Later when I see him, perhaps he will receive me. So Jacob's gifts went on ahead of him, but he himself spent the night at the camp. So the first thing that I see when Jacob's preparing for this act of reconciliation is that reconciliation requires humility. This concept of of when Jacob is getting ready to send what literally might be the point-defiant zoo to his brother out ahead of him, you see that he continues to sit down with the servants and remind them, this is what you were to say when you see Esau. You were to say that he is my Lord, and that I am his servant. You ever had that moment of when you're, when you're going somewhere and maybe you're, you're talking with your kids or your spouse and it's like, okay, here's who you're gonna meet. This is how you, you, you know, this is how you say hi to them. This is their title or like, you know, this is how you're to refer to them. This is how, like, I need you to get this right. First impressions, right? It's kind of a big deal. And we see that Jacob puts this emphasis on from the very beginning, conveying to Esau who Jacob is coming to him as, that he would be his servant and that Esau would be his Lord. And what's crazy about this is is that Jacob is a blessed man, right? And when we say blessed, I mean like that God poured out his blessings on him so much that, you know, he's, he's the type that when he's posting on social media, everything that he's posting is this gigantic humble brag, you know? Like he's taking pictures of his kids and it's just like, all of these kids and like all of these servants and you know, he's taking a picture of his house, like he's hanging out the home and it's like he's gotta switch to panoramic view because he's gotta, he's gotta include two camps worth of tents, you know, hashtag too blessed for one tent. And, <laughs> but the crazy thing is that we know that Jacob has worked for this, right? I mean, Jacob spent seven years at a time for each of his wives working under Laban. He's, he's, he's taken the, the flocks that he was entrusted with and, and, and through God's grace uh, and, and favor, he, he worked hard to, to bring a return to his uncle Laban. And then after he set out from Laban and he had his own business startup of, of animals and people and, and as he grew that business up to the, the point it is today, we see that it wasn't just God's favor 
favor that got him there, that there was, there was work that, that God had called uh, Jacob to that he was obedient in. And, and I think that it's something to, to remind ourselves that, that God's blessing doesn't necessarily mean that we're not gonna end up with calluses on our hands, right? Have you noticed that? Sometimes it's like, hey, God, you called me to this, and I thought it'd be a little bit easier, but, but there's something about God's plan of, of the purpose that he places in us that, that doesn't necessarily reserve us from, from getting our hands a little bit dirty, right? We see the, the blessing that is on Jacob, and we see the favor that is on him, and, and we see that that there's not really a, a sure idea of what Esau has on his side. And so it's, it's really interesting, this, this man with such great wealth and, 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 such, uh, and such a, a rich um, a, a descendant line coming behind him that though no matter what Esau has, that no matter how good Esau is set up, that, that Jacob would come in a way that would be... Um, as a servant to him. And, and I think the thing that we, we see, first of all, with this is, is that there, to be reconciliation, for that work to begin to happen, that someone has to take a posture of humility. There has to be someone that's willing to, to outstretch the open hand, that's, that's willing to say, I'm coming to this discussion wanting to make you greater, wanting to lift you up, not just to make myself greater. And I think the biggest thing is because we can smell an a, a insincere apology a mile away, right? I mean, it's, it's something that we, we learn as a kid how to, how to say we're sorry just to get someone off our back. And as adults, I, I think a lot of times we develop new ways of, of making it seem sincere when really we're not. But, but at the end of the day, I feel like most of us are pretty good at sniffing out an apology that's not coming from a place of humility, Something that's not birthed out of this, this sense of understanding what actually happened, what was actually done wrong, and that doesn't have a heart to make that right. Letting genuine humility go before us shows us what our intentions are. Not for our gain, not for our glory, but to right the wrong we committed. The second thing is that reconciliation requires consideration. And I don't know if you guys know this, but the conflicts that we have, the the, the sins that we commit have collateral damage. That it's not just Esau that was offended, it's the descendants of Esau, generations to come, that Jacob stole the birthright from. That the blessing that was supposed to trickle down through all these generations was instead taken to Jacob's family. And there's something to, 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 to see when, um, when we see that not only does Jacob go into it with the understanding that he's needing to make things right with Esau, but we see what he brings with him is, is enough to make it good for the family. That there's this sense that, that when we go into the, the, the practice of reconciliation, that we were to ask ourselves the questions of who else is, has been affected by this. That we would ask the one that's been offended what else, what things happen that I don't even know about? I wanna know everything. I want you to be able to explain to me what happened and, and the fallout that this was caused because I need to make this right with everyone that's been affected. Which is tough to take it to that level, but it's good that we have Jacob's example to see that that's something that we need to strive to. And I, 
I think about the times where entire segments of our family tree, because of a wrong that happened in one relationship, how generations later we can look to certain things and, and maybe some of you guys, we have parts of our family that we just know, generation to generation, it's like, oh, we just don't talk to that side of the family, you know? Something happened, we might not even know like the details of it, but we just know something happened and from that point further, there was separation to where the, the, the family unit that God had, had envisioned to be cohesive and to encourage and to love and bless each other that there's this man-made fissure that's been caused that no one has sought to repair. The third thing is that reconciliation requires God. I love that the first thing that Jacob does is he goes to God in prayer and he says, save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I'm afraid he will come and attack me and also the mothers with their children. How many know those are the ones you need to watch out for? The mothers and the children are the ones that are gonna let you know exactly what you did wrong. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper and will make your descendants like the sands of the sea, which cannot be counted. So Jacob's going into this fearful, but knowing full well that this is something that God has called him to do, which I feel like is important when we set about to restoration and, and knowing that it's something that God has called us to when it's a situation like this that's maybe a little bit on the dangerous side, right? It's good to know that you're going in with God's direction and God's blessing because that's the only way that you're gonna make it out unscathed, and, and to this, I don't know if maybe you've got examples like I do, but you know, for me and my faith, I kind of need this little bag that I have of examples that, of, of times that God's come through when I've called on him. I, to, to, to use for the next time that I really need to have enough faith to pray to God uh, for the next obstacle that I'm facing, and I, one of those times is this moment of my life where um, I needed God to absolutely melt someone's heart. You ever have the, one of those moments, like between one conversation to the conversation that's coming up, like you need to God to do this supernatural, spiritual, like no earthly reason why I should have it, 180 degree turn. And, and the crazy thing is, uh, you know, when it happens, it's something where it's like, you know, if, if you were to watch a movie with it happening, you would, you would claim the, the writing was bad and these characters weren't fully developed, you know what I mean? But there's something that God does when, when we invite him to come into the process of reconciliation where he, he softens hearts in, in ways that we can't do uh, out of any type of uh, um, uh, convincing or or, or having the right words or doing the right things, but there's something that's, that spiritually happens to where God prepares the soil for us. He goes before us and he makes a way. And no matter how it turns out, we know that if we go into it through God's leading, we know that he's there with us. And that can be the comforting thing, even though that we know that we're going into a situation where the results aren't promised to us, and the outcome might not be the way that we want it, but knowing that God is with us can be the thing that can get us through it. And we continue in chapter 33. It's time for Jacob to meet Esau. It says, Jacob looked up and there was Esau coming with his 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two female servants. He put the female servants and their children in front, Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Josephine in the rear. He himself went on ahead and bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. But Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and kissed him, and they wept. 
Then Esau looked up and saw the women and children. Who are these with you, he asked. Jacob answered, these are, they are the children God has graciously given your servant. Then the female servants and their children approached and bowed down. Next, Leah and her children came and bowed down. Last of all, Joseph and Rachel, and they too bowed down. Esau asked, what is the meaning of all the flocks and herds that I met? Wouldn't that be kind of interesting to see wave after wave of animals coming at you? How many, like, Christmas time, that's what you want for your Christmas presents, right? Uh, where did I go? Uh, to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, he said. But Esau said, I already have plenty, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. No, please, said Jacob. I have found favor in your eyes. Except, if I have found favor in your eyes, accept this gift from me. For to see your face is like seeing the face of God. Now that you have received me favorably, please accept the present that was brought to you. For God has been gracious to me and I have all I need. And because Jacob insisted, Esau accepted it. Then Esau said, let us be on our way, I'll accompany you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are tender and that I must care for the ewes and cows that are nursing their young. If they are driven hard just one day, all the animals will die. So let my Lord go ahead of his servant while I move along slowly at the pace of the flocks and the herds before me and the pace of the children until I come to my Lord, to my Lord in Seir. Esau said, then let me leave some of my men with you. But why do that, Jacob asked. Just let me find favor in the eyes of my Lord. So that day Esau started on his way back to Seir. Jacob, however, went to Succoth, where he built the place for himself and made shelters for his livestock. This is why the place is called Succoth. And I kind of feel like it, you know, some of you guys, like if you have to return back to your hometown, it, in your mind isn't your nickname for the land Succoth, you know? <laughs> it's like you got out of that. It's like, I don't want to return to that land. I kind of feel like this is like a direct translation of that word. After, unless you came from here in Federway, then obviously not, right? Because <laughs> Federway is the crown jewel of Washington. So after Jacob came from Padam Aram, he arrived safely in the city of Shechem in Canaan, encamped within sight of the city. For a hundred pieces of silver he bought from the sons of Hamar, the father of Shechem, the plot of ground where he pitched his tent. There he set up an altar and called it El Hoyin Hezrael. And you know, the first interesting thing I see about this passage is is doesn't it have some similarities to the story of the prodigal son? Yeah. Isn't it kind of interesting how there's this, this situation that's in front of where, where you're assuming like the, the bad thing to happen and all of a sudden uh, the one that you think is going to like hurt the other person like throws his arms around and they both start crying? And I love that picture. Um, but the one thing that I, I feel like I don't see in this uh, that I do with the prodigal son, and, and really any time scripture's talking about reconciliation, is that the, the first part of the actual act of reconciliation is that reconciliation requires repentance. And it, we can say that it's implied by the way that Jacob approaches Esau, the, the way that, that these wave upon wave of, of gift and gifts and, and, and this, this sense of, of coming um, humbly before him. And, and we, can kind of, we can kind of make that into some type of repentance. But looking at scripture and looking at other stories, I, I think there's something really important about not uh, leaving, about leaving out this, this act of repentance and how important it is to the restoration process. How pivotal it can be and, and how it can actually set up the, the relationship 
that's to come. And I know a lot of times in our lives, we'll, we'll have those moments with people where we'll apologize for something, and the other person will say, don't worry about it. They're like, ah, don't, don't, no, it's okay, don't, don't, don't talk about it. It's like, we're good, I'm okay, don't mention it again. And a lot of times we accept that because we know that they're just trying to make us comfortable. And, but I, I think that this, in the same way that we see Jacob uh, kind of insist upon presenting these gifts to Esau, I think we can take something away from that. That there's, there's something about the act of repentance, about verbalizing the, the, the understanding that we have committed a sin between them and between God and that we have cost them something that, that, that can't be just left implied. I think the problem is that when we do leave that implied, a lot of times we'll go throughout the, the, the remainder of our relationship calling back to that and wondering, you know, are we really good? You know, do we really like, get everything out of that situation? Did we really um, cover all the things? And are there, are there things that they didn't tell me because they just didn't want to bring it up? That there's, are they still carrying the burden? And there's, there's this, this, this like uh, similarity I, I see between, you know, sometimes when we go to, we, we need to paint a wall, right? And we have the option of, uh, of getting it done quickly or we have the option of doing it done right, right? And, and to to do it right, we, we go through and we patch up holes and we remove wallpaper and we sand down rough edges. And we do that because the end product that we want, we want it to be done right. And, and the other option is just taking the roller and going to town. And how many of you guys know that like after you do that, it's like every one of those little like uh, issues is like it's got its own spotlight on it now? There's something about a fresh coat of paint that just like shows off every like mistake that you've ever made in your life on that wall to the point of when you like you're showing your friends your house and like uh, your friends like why does this wall have like 10 pictures on it and it's like oh you know no reason but you know it's, it's the wall that you're ashamed of that every time because you, you didn't take the time to really do it right from the beginning and your only options uh, from that point are, are, are just dealing with the wall itself or, or tearing it all down and redoing it again. And, and I think there's something that we can learn from this story in our own relationships because there's relationships that we have that are just too important to let go, you know? At, at some point, it's easy to, to just write people off in our lives. Um, but I think we need to ask what, what that does to future generations of both sides. We, we need to ask what it does to our own heart. We need, to, we need to take all of these things in consideration and ask ourselves at the beginning, is it worth it for me to actually do the work at the beginning? For me to make sure that I don't settle for a we're good, but that I pursue that repentance, that I ask for forgiveness in that. The second part is that reconciliation requires restitution. This is the tough part, right? I mean, it's, saying sorry is, is, is one thing, but when it comes to, to taking the next step and to replacing or repairing what we previously broke, then things get a little bit more dicey, right? And we'll tell kids that, you know, hey, sorry doesn't cut it, but there's something about when we get to the place where our apologies carry with it a, a real cost that sometimes those, those lines get a little bit more fluctuating on our end, you know? We love to receive the forgiveness, but sometimes it's the cost uh, associated with bringing that, that, that forgiveness that sometimes might seem too much 
for us to want to process. And there's other times where we just know that there's never anything we're going to be able to do to make up for it, right? We have, we have done something that is irreparable. It's, 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 it's gone for forever. And, and we see this with Jacob where he's stolen something that can never be repaid. But I love that Jacob's response isn't, hey man, I'm really sorry and there's nothing I'm gonna be able to do about this, but will you just forgive me? His response is to send wave after wave. He knows that, that the, what he cost Esau is never gonna be repaid, but he's, he's showing Esau, I'm gonna go to every extent that I can to make up as much of that as possible. I know that your livestock would be much greater than this, but I'm gonna give you as much as I possibly can. I'm gonna make every effort that I can to show you how much I understand that I have cost you, and I'm gonna do everything that I can to show you that I care about making this right between us. The third thing is that reconciliation requires grace. How many know that reconciliation is a two-way street? And that if Esau hadn't extended grace to Jacob, this reconciliation would have ended much differently. That there's a point where Esau has to decide if what Jacob is bringing as, uh, as repentance and an apology is worth restoring the relationship. And there's this grace that Esau extends that, that goes beyond what Jacob can provide to make this situation right. And, and even to the extent where he's saying, there's nothing that you have to give me. Because you are my brother and I love you, I am willing to restore this relationship. That, that I appreciate everything that you're doing and the way you're approaching me, but, but I wanna extend grace to you. And there's this concept that we as Christians carry of, of grace that's modeled to us by our Savior, the, the grace that's extended to us by Christ dying on the cross, where there's nothing that we can do to make up for the sins that we have committed, and, but there's this, there's this open hand that God, that God brings out to us of, I understand that you're never gonna be able to make up for this, but I have made a way for us to, to be reconciled together, for us to restore our relationship, and and. And the, the joy that I feel like in this moment that, that the generations that are in this, this collective are experiencing and, and the thought of if Esau isn't extending grace, he's never gonna know his nieces and nephews. He's gonna miss out on a whole separate side of his family that, that God has intended to bring life and joy and hope to. And, and Esau's nieces and nephews are never gonna know Uncle Esau. And I kind of feel like Uncle Esau, you know, with a name like Uncle Esau, that's a cool uncle, right? I mean, like, that's the uncle that's got quads and, like, takes you out fishing and, like, you know, lets you eat all the things your parents won't, right? These, these kids get to experience their cousins and their uncle, and, and there's joy that comes into generations of family because one man decided that he was going to extend grace, that he was going to, in the same way that Jacob comes as a servant to, to lift the other up, that he was going to match that same thing. And, and instead of uh, taking that role as the Lord, that he was to say, I'm going to lift you up too, Jacob. That together we're going to restore this relationship. And the last part is that reconciliation requires redefining boundaries. 
And it's interesting to me that when Jacob comes back with Esau, there's a certain point where Esau goes ahead and Jacob veers off to the side, right? And he sets up his camp in, a, in another part of his hometown away from Esau. And it isn't until later when, uh, when Isaac passes that we find out that this would most likely be the last time they see each other until that moment. And I know that when we see reconciliation, I, th- I think there's maybe some part of us that thinks that, okay, well, at this point in the story, they're reconciled together, so that means the families are gonna be together, that every Friday is double date night for Jacob and Esau, and that, can you imagine like the family secret Santa exchanges between like these two like gigantic households, right? Like, the din- like there's not a dinner table that fits all these people. But we see that that's not the case that happens. We see that there's something that causes Jacob to, although he's reconciled with his brother, to set up camp in another area. And I, I think part of that, when we look into it, is, is, is really a, an example for us on the way that sometimes reconciliation doesn't always mean that our relationship looks the way it did before. And we know that Jacob at this point is following God and he's obedient to God and so much so that, that whatever Jacob's desires are are gonna come second to what God has for him. And sometimes when we're in a relationship and the other person isn't uh, following the same priorities, isn't, isn't led in the same way, sometimes there can be friction and I think Jacob knows that that's potentially gonna happen and so to maintain their, their state of restoration and in a family, they decide that they're just gonna live separately and so that they can, they can remain restored and they can, they can remain family, but, but there's gonna be enough separation to where Jacob can still serve God and, and not have friction that would, would come up later. And, and I think in the same way, a lot of times when, when we restore relationship, the first instinct is like, how are we gonna do all the things that we used to do before? Like, like you know, we used to enjoy doing this together and like, let's go do that. I think the problem is that a lot of times those things that we did together have led to the friction that it's caused, right? So if we first ask God, like, you know, hey, what are the things in that relationship that maybe need to be set up as boundaries? Where, where, was, where was the rub into this before and that what might not be healthy to pursue that same type of relationship? It doesn't mean that relationship isn't restored. It doesn't mean that the friendship uh, can't carry the same weight, but but maybe there's certain things that you don't do anymore with them. Maybe you don't take long car rides with them anymore. Maybe you don't share your popcorn with them at the movie theater. And I think that there's something we learn about ourselves in these moments too, when we realize, hey, you know what? Maybe it's not them, maybe it's me. Maybe I just don't like to share my popcorn with anybody. And that might be something, a personal boundary that I need to set up in my life, which I'm telling my kids now is a personal boundary that I have set up. No sharing of the popcorn. You pour it out in a little tray, you know, and you pass it around, but like, no one touches the other bag. But there's something that we can do to prevent future issues, the same things coming up time and time again. If we, if we take a moment to, to seek God and to ask God, God, what would you like this relationship to look like moving forward? How do you want these interactions to be? And we might be looking at this and saying, this is a daunting task and probably not worth it for most of my friends, and why should I not just ghost anybody that I have the slightest of friction with? And, 
And I think the greatest reason for that we find in 2 Corinthians chapter five. I, love, I, I just love this one. I get kind of excited. So if I get a little excited while I'm reading this, just forgive me. But it says, for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for the man was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though one regarded Christ in this way, though we once regarded Christ this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against him. And he has committed us to the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God was making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. For Christ's love compels us. And I love that compels word. And when I think about compels, I think of the, the shopping cart that you get that, that wants to compel you to one side or the other, you know? That you have a purpose and a plan, but there's something about that cart that just does not want to let you go where you want. I think there's something, which is fine if you're in the right aisle and you know, the cart steers you to the gummy worms, you know what I mean? Then it's like, hey, Jesus took the wheel and like, this is on, these, these calories on him, but, but there's something about Christ's love that we just can't get away from. That no matter how, how uh, close-minded we might be about loving other people, there's something about the, the love that Christ has shown us and, and what we have found through him that doesn't let us pursue our own goals, but that pulls us towards reconciling with others. And that God has given us a, a purpose and a plan, and that is to, to make his appeal through us and to be ambassadors of his reconciliation. That when we think about restoring relationships, it's not so that we feel better at family events or, or that we can now hang out with our friend who has a boat again, but that there's something that God is wanting to do through us that shows that reconciliation with God is in the same way that we can, we can restore relationship with others. And, and we get that because we've experienced that with Christ, although it's really great to be reminded of that. But we have to remember that there's people that are watching us. There's people that we're interacting with that have never before experienced this type of love, that have never experienced the type of reconciliation and, and acceptance and grace that would say, I don't care what has happened. I love you and I want to be restored with you relationally. And, and through that, we get to make God's appeal to others to come to him through our own actions and our own relationships. And that's something that for me gets me pretty excited because it, it tells me that the purpose that I have is something that I can actually walk out. Hey, my, my current YouTube rabbit trail is, uh, is watching old tools be restored. 
It's uh, taking these old vices or hammers or axes or, and things and these, these things that once had a purpose and you could tell were, were handcrafted in a way that accomplished goals but, but have become rusty and broken. And, and you just watch these, these people go to work of removing the rust and, and replacing handles and, and machining new fittings and the work and the care that they do and, and, and painting this, this, this new paint job. And, 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 and I love the ones that they, they, they paint it and then they go back through with white paint and uh, where uh, the manufacturer was, uh, they, they, they bring that out again. And it's like restoring the purpose and the plan that was originally created for this item and breathing new life and hope back into it. And there's people that we have in our lives that, that have, have run out of the hope and the purpose that God has called them to. And God has called us to be his ambassadors and to reach out to them and, and to show them that the, the same grace that we would extend to them is available through Christ. I think some of us, you know, after doing communion today, that, that when we sit down and we, we receive the, the bread and the juice and, and, we, and we say that it is right between us and God, I think a lot of us today, God's gonna bring people to our mind that, that we need to take communion with. That we need to sit down and we need to figure out how we can get to the point where we say it's good between us. And you don't have to use juice and barely edible crackers. You can do coffee and donuts if you want. But there's, there's going to be people that God brings to mind that we're gonna need to go in and extend grace to. Act in humility. And there's also gonna be people in your life that God might encourage for you to encourage them to, to share communion with someone else. And, and with that, I would put this little asterisk next to it of, of a, go into that fully prayerfully aware that that's something God's asking you to do and as gently as you would be if you were parking a U-Haul in between two Maseratis, right? Stay in your lane, right? But God's gonna put people on your hearts and be praying that, that through you, God would be able to show his reconciling power to others that need to know that their God loves them and wants to reconcile them to him. And when we go about it, before we do, we approach it with humility and consideration for others that have been impacted with a ton of prayer that God would go before you. And when we do, we seek reconciliation. We make sure that it includes repentance, restitution, grace, and an understanding that the relationship might be healthier if it involves some clearly defined boundaries. Uh, will you stand with me and bow your heads as we close? God, we thank you for the love of Christ that compels us, God, that continues to bring us back into the remembrance of what you've done for us, God, that, that even um, family issues and righting wrongs, God, that, that even these mundane, regular life types of situations have eternal significance, that, that they point to something so much greater than what we're able to accomplish on our own. God, I pray that, that as we leave today and throughout this week, God, that you would just cover us with grace, God. 
God, that when we feel we are insufficient to making things right, God, that you would just fill in the cracks that you, would, that you would empower us through your Holy Spirit, God, to, to pursue the calling that you have for us, that God, when you call us back into our homeland and to reconcile with others, God, that you go before us, Jesus. Help us to be dependent on you. Help us, not, God, not to, to, to try to uh, manipulate things on our own or, or try to seek repentance where you haven't called us yet to walk into. But God, let us just like Jacob be so fully obedient to you and so dependent on your calling in our lives, God, that when it is time for us to walk in repentance and reconciliation, that you have already gone before us. You've already prepared the way. God, we thank you so much for involving us in your eternal plan of bringing those far from you back to you. We love you so much and we thank you. In your name we pray, amen. Amen, isn't God good? Amen. Just a reminder that this is the last week of life groups. How many of you guys have enjoyed this year of life groups? Hasn't it been awesome? So don't think to yourself, oh, you know what, I'll catch it next time. This is the last time. So make sure that, that this week you're in with your life groups and before that you're praying for your people and as we go today, so the grace, God, God's grace is on us and that he goes before us. Sound good? We'll see you next week. Have a good week. I always just wish that, like, uh, you know, like there was a first service that no one listened to.